Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome the Ryanair Supremo, one of the most important and influential figures in national hunt racing through the last two decades to the programme and say a very good luck on Sunday. Welcome to Michael O'Leary. Michael, good morning. Morning, Nick. Good morning to you and all the viewers. Very nice to talk to you this morning. You, you were watching on yesterday the, the, the Dublin Racing Festival. I'm fascinated, first of all, just to, to hear your thoughts on, on this weekend and, and sort of its importance to, to Irish racing as a whole and sort of what you thought of the whole day, really. I think it was a marvellous event yesterday. You know, you couldn't but be in, impressed with the performances of Honeysuckle, Willie's Four Wins, it was racing at the very highest order with all the best horses taking each other on. It's what's the very best of national hunt racing. And, and when you look at a, a day like that and, and you're competing still at, at the highest level, even though you've, you've stated your intention to sort of scale back the, the interest, is there a part of you that thinks, I, I don't want to move away from this. I still want to be in this and, and in it competing. Uh, honestly, no. You know, I was very pleased with the performance of our runners yesterday. Uh, notebook ran well. Well beaten by Shaq and Persuan, no complaints. Abracadabras ran very well, having run under a cloud at Christmas. But no, you know, I'm very busy with the airline at the moment. I'm very busy. I have four children who are keeping me very busy. And frankly, my interests lie elsewhere, I think, for the next couple of years. I'm fascinated by national hunt racing. Myself and Eddie have had a wonderful run in it for the last 20 years. I think we've won everything we set out to win. And I think now it's time for new owners to come through and take up that mantle, uh, challenging JP and all the other long existing owners. Uh, and it's good to refresh, I think, the ownership and the industry every decade. Can you, can you remember the first time you really felt gripped by the sport, Michael, when it first got hold of you? I think, yes, when Tuco won the, I think it was the Land Rover bumper was the first uh, real buzz I got out of the industry, but I, I, I think without doubt, it my what hooked me was War of Attrition running second in the Supreme Novice to Brave Inca, which is my first trip to Cheltenham as an owner, uh, and to get that close to a win, walking back into that winner's enclosure is an addictive and compulsive experience that any owner who's had the privilege of walking back into that owner's enclosure uh, will remember for their uh, remember for the remainder of their lives and the story of war of attrition was a great one he went on to win the the gold cup in in 2006 and conor o'dwyer and uh, there there you are leading the horse in and that's that is just a, a look of complete unfettered joy uh, and i'm not sure i i'm not sure i've seen you you that ecstatic since then oh well i think when Liverpool beat, sorry, when City beat Liverpool today and Ireland stuffed Wales, <laughs> you'll see equally ex equal ecstasy. But no, I mean, I've gone on record as saying on my deathbed, I think I will loyally remember the birth of my four children and the wins of War of Attrition and Don Cossack in the Gold Cup. And that, that moment, you know, you, you're, you're owning horses at a, at a high level at that point and, and quite a few of them, but it's still relatively early in... In, in the whole sort of Jiggenstown project. Um, was it better then? Was it more enjoyable then? I don't think so. I think every win is enjoyable, whether it's on the point-to-point -point course, it's a bumper. Um, but fundamentally, it's the great ones that we got into this game for, whether over hurdles or chases. And ultimately, that leads you to Cheltenham. And I think once you've had a winner in Cheltenham, the experience of it is addictive. 
it doesn't in any way diminish or reduce winners in Aintree or Fairy House or Punchestown. But really, Cheltenham is an extraordinary experience. And anyone who's had a winner in Cheltenham, uh, we're in a very small uh, but extremely uh, committed band of brothers and sisters. Um, but all of us will remember those Cheltenham wins for the rest of our lives. So what for you? I mean, you're, you're a massive sports fan all round. What for you makes that particular place so special? Why does it get you? Why does it grip you? I think, firstly, it's so tough to win there. The bar is set so very high. Uh, you go through many horses who are very talented but suffer injuries and all other challenges. Just to get a horse to Cheltenham is a challenge. Um, there's a wonderful feeling of camaraderie between, I think, generally the Irish and the English at Cheltenham. Yes, we bitch and moan about each other, but ultimately we're all na huge National Hunt fans. Um, and the whole theatre of winning in Cheltenham, walking back down the chute, uh, walking back into the uh, winner's enclosure, uh, and the theatre around that, uh, which has been dramatically improved in recent years by the physical developments at Cheltenham, um, are amazing. Now, you pay for it. Uh, because I spent much more of my lifetime in Cheltenham in the unsaddling enclosure, as Eddie would call it, the poop pit. Um, <laughs> but spending lots of time down there makes you appreciate and the, those rare occasions when you get into the winner's enclosure. It's a wonderful experience and it's a wonderful sport. I'm interested because you're, you're intense about your, your, your business. You, you apply yourself to it with um, a passion, sometimes an aggression. Has racing been a release for you or do you just apply yourself to the racing enterprise in the same way that you apply yourself to everything else in life? Yeah, I think I wouldn't call it a release. You know, we got very consumed in racing for a large number of years when, frankly, I didn't have children. I started when I wasn't even married. So I had lots of spare time. I was very fortunate in doing it jointly with Eddie uh, who's, you know, without doubt, one of the best judges of horses in, in the British Isles. His record as a breeder, pin hooker on the flat. But buying young stock, jumping stock, uh, out of fields and in sales and seeing them develop over the years into grade one uh, winners and champions uh, meant that, you know, I was on the inside track. And I've really been incredibly fortunate uh, to do it jointly with Eddie over the years, and then to share that with a wide number of very talented trainers like, you know, Willie Mullins, Gordon Elliott, Noel Mead, uh, more recently Joseph O'Brien, um, Henry de Bromhead, but also Mouse, uh, who did a wonderful job of war attrition over the years. Is it something you could ever have been hands-off with? Could you ever be hands-off with anything? If you're going to do something, do you have to be deeply involved in it? You're not just going to hand horses to a trainer and go, there you are, crack on, um, call me when they run. I don't think I could, given my lack of skill, could be particularly hands-on with National Hunt horses. Um, but take, I do take the best of advice from Eddie and from Gordon and our other trainers. We want our horses placed in the best races. We want them competitive all the time. We've no interest in handicapping horses or pulling them up or all the, some of that messing that goes on. Um, and so we have very definite views on the way they should be ridden and where they should be entered. And if they're not good enough at the end of every year, we get rid of them. You, you mentioned some but of that. But other than that, that, that I leave it to the trainers and to Eddie to make the decisions. 
you, Michael, you, you mentioned some of that, that messing that goes on, the, the, the handicapping system. Do, do you think that is to racing significant detriment from, from your point of view? I, I do, but ultimately, you know, there are a lot of smaller trainers uh, and owners uh, who are more the trainers trying to make a living you know, and don't have the support of the large owners or the, the wealthy breeders. And it's very difficult for them to make a living in that. It's inevitable, I think, that there will always be some small element of the handicapping and putting horses away for handicaps and betting. But, but fundamentally, I think if you look at Ireland, and I think it's been demonstrated by the Dublin Racing Festival this weekend, Leperstown at Christmas, Punchestown, and our participation in Aintree and Cheltenham, but fundamentally, in Ireland, we have the best horses, trained by the best trainers, ridden by the best jockeys. Um, and it is a very deep pool of talent here. Uh, and ultimately, I think it is a remarkably clean and well-run operation, particularly in the jump sailing business. I know very little about the flat. So from, from what you're saying, am I, to, am I to infer that you don't see anything that, that's come, come out in the newspapers in the last two or three weeks about Irish racing that you're particularly worried about? No. I mean, you know, there are occasional screw-ups. I mean, as somebody who makes regular screw-ups myself, you know, the start in Nace last week was very unfortunate. It was badly handled. But, you know, we do make human errors. Um, I know nothing about the, 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 the this doping thing that went on in uh, Tremor last year. But again, I would argue that these seem to be reasonably isolated incidents. I don't in any way um, condone them or dismiss them lightly. And when they emerge, they should be they should be tackled and they should be tackled aggressively and dealt with. But if you look across the jump sector in Ireland, the trainers, the owners, the jockeys, Everybody's trying to win, whether it's the Dublin Racing Festival or it's at Cheltenham. Uh, and you know, I think there is remarkably little messing in the industry um, compared to the likes of the Dick Francis novels or some of the rumor. The rumor, and social media is not great for this. You know, the, you've all the conspiracy loonies on social media. Uh, I think generally the horse racing authorities in Ireland and the UK do a pretty good job. I don't know, Michael, if you you heard Gary earlier on talking to to Dennis Egan. It's been very challenging two or three weeks for, for Dennis and and Gary Gary put it to him the the question of, of Jim Bolger and the allegations that he made that were rather non-specific. And then he said that Jim was still in regular contact with with Dr. Lynn Hillier and they'd been having exchanges of of conversation. What, what do you make of Jim's intervention into into this? Well, I think you take somebody uh, who's had a career and a lifetime of achievement like Jim Bulger, and I think anything he says has to be taken seriously. But it should be investigated and either found correct or incorrect. And if Jim has allegations he wants to make, make them to the horse racing authorities, have them investigated uh, fairly openly and dealt with. But what we shouldn't have is this continuing a sort of a rumbling of there's doping going on in Irish racing. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who's one of the largest owners of jumped horses, you know, we've never doped one of our horses. Um, we've certainly never tried to stop one or slow one. Uh, if I could find something that would speed a few of them up, I might be sorely <laughs> tempted to give them a jab of it. Um, but 
you know, I know of none of the owners, uh, JP, myself, Rich Ritchie, you know, any of it, Rob Coor, Lowell Valleymore, we're all trying to win, but it's a very, I think, uh, competitive, uh, open and honest sport, uh, certainly at the, the upper levels in Irish jump racing. You mentioned some of those names there. Some have been around an awful long time, JP McManus and then, and then you, uh, Rich Ritchie more recently, and now Nolan Valerie Moore and Brian Atchison's Robcore company. Are you surprised at all by mm. how many bigger players are now coming on, onto the scene? I'm not. I think uh, I'm always remember the, uh, who was the guy who ran Formula One? He said, you know, Bernie Eccleston, he said, don't worry about it. There's always another billionaire who'll come along. And <laughs> um, JP has done a, a, a wonderful job at transforming Ireland, I think, in now English racing. I mean, I don't know how he does it, but I have full of admiration for what he does. Um, and there will always be, you know, rich or wealthy people who will find the experience of Cheltenham and jump racing phenomenally exciting, as we did for many years. Um, I've seen others come and go. We've had Rich Ritchie and Graham Wiley. And it's clear, I think, in the next couple of years in Ireland, uh, as I depart, myself in any league, um, Rob Coor, Lola Valerie Moore, and others will step in and fill the breach. I think that's great. You know, the one concern I had when we announced we were stepping down about two or three years ago was that you'd leave a hole in some of the trainers like Gordon, like Noel Mead and others. And I think by keeping the horses in training, not getting rid of them all in one fell swoop, We've allowed them those three or four years they need to replace um, the Jigginstown horses with other owners. I think in many respects, uh, Jigginstown's decision to leave uh, over a three or four year period has encouraged more owners into the sport here in Ireland. Uh, you, you talked about Gordon Elliott earlier on. He's had so much success for you. And you've made no yeah. secret, you and Eddie, that it is a results-based business. If trainers are performing for you, then you yeah. send them more horses. If they're not performing for you, the horses, the horses go. But what is it about Gordon Elliott, you think, that sets him apart from all the other trainers that you've used? I think it's unfair to say what sets him apart. I think there's a lot of very good trainers here in Ireland. You know, Willie, Gordon, Noel Mead has been doing it for now 50 years. And, you know, the newer brigade, Henry Bromhead, Joseph O'Brien and others. But I think what has always set Gordon apart was the, the lengths to which he was willing to go to get winners. You know, he started off putting horses in boxes and taking them to air and to, you know, second division tracks in the UK. He was obsessed with getting winners, a bit like Martin Pipe, his mentor. And that has continued. And the more horses we sent Gordon, the more winners he got us. Uh, the better horses we sent him, the better winners he got us. He has a fantastic team in Cullentroff brilliant facilities. Everything, every, I think every pound he earns is uh, put back into the facilities in Cullentroff. And, you know, he has transformed the way certain jumps horses are trained in Ireland. And he needs to because he's competing with Willie Mullins and Noel Mead and others who have set an incredibly high bar over many years. Do you think Willie Mullins would still be doing what Willie Mullins is doing now and did yesterday without the pressure applied by the success of Gordon Elliott? Yeah, absolutely not. I think Willie would still be training 80 or 100 horses if Gordon had never come along. Um, the competition between Gordon and Willie has transformed not just jump racing in Ireland in recent years, it's transformed jump racing in 
a British island. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the late 70s and the early 80s, when the Irish were going to Cheltenham, and you'd be lucky to have one winner. Now we go over there with a, not just Nolan Gordon, but a team of trainers, and we think it's a bad Cheltenham if we don't win 50% of the races. Yeah. They are transforming the way jumps horses are bought, uh, trained, uh, developed, and and the results are, are being produced. I think that's why new owners, for example, like Cheveley Park, have their horses trained here in Ireland. Rich Ritchie was the first one who was largely based in England, had all his horses trained in Ireland. And I think it's been great for the industry here in Ireland. And long may it continue. I wanted to talk about your own your own relationship with with Willie Mullins, which at one stage was was pretty robust. You had a lot of horses in training mm. with him. You, you you don't now. Could you ever envisage yeah. a time in the future where you would rekindle that relationship? I mean, you never say never. Look, I think for the certainly the next ten years, I will have almost no jumps horses in training. I think it's going to you know my children are the youngest is ten. I think for the next 10 years, I will be largely focused on the children. Um, after that, who knows? Would I like to have some jumps horses in the future? I think so. Um, would I want to have them with the best trainers? Absolutely. And that would clearly include Willie Mullins. I mean, it's, no, there's no secret. We fell out with Willie over an increase in training fees. Um, he has his business to run. I respect that. Um, I had a huge number of horses and felt it would have been unfair if I was paying higher fees with one trainer than many others. And it, you know, there was no big deal. I, the height of regard for Willie, for Patrick, for Jackie, they run a fantastic operation. They are very good people. And it would be a pleasure to have horses trained there again, if I have jumps horses in training. Um, but that's certainly, I think, at least a decade away. It also, too, depends on what Eddie wants to do. You know, Eddie's busy with the breeding. Um, I think he's also buying some horses foreign with Gordon. Um, and I wouldn't want to get back into it. It's certainly not at the levels I've been at for the last five or ten years, unless Eddie was uh, up for the challenge and wanted to go around to 30 or 40 bloodstock sales a year. So it's not just about me and my family. I think it's also about what Eddie wants to do uh, and how busy and how much time he could devote to it as well. But certainly for the next five or ten years, if there are any jiggles on horses in training, there'll be probably some flat two-year-olds or three-year-olds that I couldn't sell as yearlings. Well, uh, is there any possibility you might get bitten by that? And if you say, say you got one that went on and became a half a classic horse or something like that, do you think, do you think that would suddenly start to take over? Absolutely not. I have no interest in flat racing. It is as dull as watching paint dry. I will devote my sporting endeavours for the next five or ten years to supporting Man City, uh, the Irish rugby team, the Munster rugby team, and whatever uh, teams my children are participating in, uh, which largely at the moment now is schools rugby, cross-country running, and um, a little bit of uh, judo as well. You clearly have mentioned that the, the last year has been incredibly busy. As someone who, who runs an airline, I can't, I can't sort of even conceive of what every, of every day must be like. Are you a different Michael O'Leary now to the Michael O'Leary who entered this pandemic a year ago? I think we all are. We're all a product of our experiences. I mean, we used to buy forward our fuel in the airline. Yeah, we'd buy 90% of the fuel going forward because we never thought we would fly less than 90% of what we planned to, 
even after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Gulf War, you know, we were still able to carry, might lose 5 or 10% of our flights, but we'd run 90% of the flights. We're now running less than 5% of our normal flight operations. We have 17, 18,000 aviation professionals, many of them of whom are suffering on the furlough schemes. Uh, they're uh, really suffering very uh, challenging financial and personal circumstances. And we're devoting every waking moment we have to trying to get our uh, flights back in the air, get people back traveling, and more importantly, to get our 18,000 aviation professionals back to work and on the getting well paid by Ryanair for what they do so well. And I'm very hopeful with the success of the UK vaccine rollout uh, that we will see a large scale return of UK um, passengers visiting the beaches of Europe again uh, during the peak of summer 2021. The rest of the EU is sadly running somewhat behind the UK vaccine programme. We're calling on the likes of the Irish government and others to get their finger out and catch up. Um, and if, if and when they do, I hope to see all of Ryanair's fleet back in the air, if not by June, July this year, certainly by September, October. We want to get our people back to work and we need to get our people back to work. You've never been frightened, Michael, of being at right angles to, to popular opinion. Do you feel you have to check yourself now because of the unusual situation we are in when you put a, a position out there like, like that, trying to sort of accelerate uh, society back to normality when there is understandably such a, a, a great appetite for, for extreme caution, particularly at this very point in time? I don't. You know, we take a view and we have an opinion and we're willing to argue our opinion. You know, I've been very critical of the UK and the Irish government over the way they managed the COVID lockdown, which generally was far too slow to respond. And they mismanaged track and tracing spectacularly, both in Ireland and in the UK. But we should also give credit to the UK government in particular, where they've uh, rolled out the vaccine programme incredibly successfully. Uh, the Irish government less so. We're still getting a daily diet of negativity and case numbers here from our uh, health professionals and not enough focus on vaccine and vaccine rollouts. Um, so we should continue to call that out where we think things could be done better. Ryanair is a logistics business. We're good at logistics. Um, and I think we have something to offer in that debate. And certainly we need to look beyond the current doom and gloom. If the UK, as they appear they will, vaccinate 50% of the, their population by the end of May, you have almost all of the high-risk groups there covered. And therefore, there's no requirement for lockdowns or indeed travel restric restrictions because the younger cohort, who will gradually be vaccinated after that, are, are statistically very likely to suffer serious illness, uh, fatalities or hospitalisation. So you'll remove the risk of the health service. In Ireland, however, we're still hopelessly locked down. This is our third lockdown. And we'll have a fourth lockdown if we don't get our finger out and get the vaccine programme up and running. And so far, there seems to be lots of mismanagement on the vaccine programme, which is why our health authorities don't want to announce on a daily basis the number of vaccines. And we think that's the minimum that should be imposed upon them. If they want to have a daily press conference, announce how many people you've vaccinated today. Uh, are the Irish government 
consulting industry leaders or are, is somebody like you, for example, just seen as a, an outlier and a bit of a pain in the neck? Uh, they're certainly not consulting industry. Generally speaking, uh, it's being run by the medical public health authorities um, who have a pretty patchy record in delivery over many years. I think they should have brought in more experience from logistical companies, you know, the people who deliver the parcels, the post, and bring in the GPs. I mean, we have a very successful vaccination, flu vaccination program here each year, which is run effectively by the GP uh, industry. And that's where we should be prioritizing the rollout of vaccines, not through huge, big public mismanaged functions like our National Health Service here in Ireland. Michael, I, I want to, to close by talking about Tiger Roll because he is entered in the Grand National again. He Agreed. is already part of, of yeah. sporting folklore. Um, you've spoken a lot the last couple of years about what weight he ought to have in, in the National. Speaking now, Sunday, February the 7th, with, yeah. uh, what are we now, nine days until the National weights come out. What do you want? What are you expecting? I'm going to make it simple this year. Uh, I think the handicapper has unfairly weighted Tiger Roll for the last two years in the UK. He's rated about 170. He last won the national off 159. He's run four times since and not finished in the frame. He was beaten by Easy Land in Cheltenham November last year. Uh, Easy Land, he beat him 17 lengths off level weights. Easy Land is now rated 167. And yet somehow Tiger Roll is still rated 170. I think if he rates him fairly, somewhere in the 150s, he'll run in the Grand National. And if he rates him in the 160s or 170s, he won't run in the Grand National. We will take him out after the uh, entries, uh, after the weights declaration. And the plan has always been with Gordon and Eddie to go for the cross country in Cheltenham, where I believe he will be kicked out of the way again by Easy Land. Uh, and then I think the options are we're looking at possibly retirement or um, we may look at entering him in the Irish Grand National, which comes up at Easter, and where I think he would be more fairly weighted in the 150s, which is where his rating should be, not in 170. Michael, do you, do you know how disappointed the, the two racing nations would be if Tiger Roll was fit, healthy, hearty, rated somewhere in the low 160s, which would theoretically still give him a great chance of winning a third Grand National, yet you cut that threshold off at 160 and said he will not run. Do you, do you not feel a, a sort of certain responsibility? No, I think we feel a responsibility to the horse. You know, he owes us nothing. He owes nobody anything. He's a four-time winner in Cheltenham and a two-time Grand National winner. Uh, we will not allow him to run where he is unfairly weighted. And I put it this way. If he's rated in the low 160s, he would have to give uh, or he might receive three or four pounds from a horse, young horse like the likes of Easyland, who's now rated 167. And Easyland beat him by 17 lengths two years ago when Easyland was six and Tiger Roll was nine. He's now 11. He's getting older. He may not even run again after Cheltenham. You know, his last couple of runs suggest that maybe he's not in love with the game anymore. And the priority at this point in time is minding Tiger Row. Uh, we're happy to let him run in the cross-country in Cheltenham, which is his primary target, not the Grand National. He'll run there off level weights with all those other horses. But we're not going to ask him to lump huge amount of weights around. Uh, he's a small horse. Just because the UK 
handicapper uh, wants to penalise him on the basis of his reputation rather than the basis of what he's actually achieved over the last two years. And, and just a word on, on, on Davy Russell, uh, with whom you've had a, an amazing relationship mm. really over the years, ups and downs, and the association with Tiger Roll, a sort of a, a glorious conclusion to it in, in many respects. He's been in the wars this season. How... How much more admiration yeah. do you have for him as a rider and as a man now than you did perhaps when he was riding you stacks and stacks of, of festival winners? We've always had huge admiration for Davey. He's a brilliantly talented jockey. He was a bit of a lunatic uh, trying to allowing his waist to go up and down or trying to get it down too low for a number of years. But I think marriage in recent years, children ha has changed him. He's a remarkable jockey and he's also now a remarkable professional. But, you know, after the last injury he has, I wish he would look at the bigger picture. I wish he'd actually retire. I think he should. He's had a remarkable career. But he's also the father now of three or four children. And I would hate him to take any more risks, particularly where he's had the kind of warning uh, with the neck injury. Uh, and I, for the sake of Adele and his family, I wish he'd retire. I don't think he will. Um, and if he continues to ride, he will continue to be one of Ireland's leading jockeys. But there's more to life now than riding winners. And he's had already, if he stops now, he's had a remarkable career and he would know and owe nothing to anybody else. And for you, Michael, and, and you've articulated this very clearly, there is more to life in racing. It doesn't mean, or more to life than racing, it doesn't mean that you don't still, still love the sport or still passionate about the sport might not be in the next decade, but the decade after that. Uh, is there still something that you'd like from it that you haven't had already? Or maybe something you'd like to give to it that you haven't given already? I think we would like to give back if we can. I mean, uh, you look at the fortune, the races we've run in the last 10, 20 years, two Gold Cups, three Grand Nationals, I think four or five Irish Grand Nationals, most of the main races in Cheltenham without the, the champion hurdle. Racing owes me nothing. If I had spent two or three times the amount of money I've spent on jump racing over the last 20 years with Eddie, it was still be money well spent. But I think the challenge is I've been spoiled by that success over the last 10 or 20 years. And it would be very difficult to come back to it and go, you know, why aren't we winning all these races again without buying another two or 300 horses? So I think it's unlikely. I am somewhat addicted to it. Um, but like most addictions, you try and wean yourself off it and then stay away from it uh, for fear of relapse again in the future. There are other things in life. Uh, I have given a lot to racing in the last 20 years. And I think, you know, I would like to hope the next 10 years will be gives a little bit more to my family, a bit more to my work. And um, hopefully, the, you know, we're growing the stud in plantation in Newmarket and in Jiggenstown here. We've been somewhat successful in the last year or two with new mares and at the fold sale, fold yearling sales. And I would hope to continue to see that um, grow and expand. Uh, we have some very good management in plantation and I have some very good management here in Chickenstown as well. No sign of the pipe and slippers yet, Michael. Thank you very much indeed for your company this morning. Thanks, Nick. And I just wish a very happy new year to all your viewers. And here's hoping we'll see the end of the COVID crisis by the middle of uh, 2021.